Welcome to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast, a show that features backgrounds, reviews, and reflections of some of the most influential movies ever made. And now your hosts, Emma and Jack. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast. And today, we are going to be talking about the 1954 American crime drama on the waterfront. Emma, how are you today? We are so excited to be covering this listener-requested film. Yes, today we are covering a listener-requested film on the waterfront, and this movie stars Marlon Brando. And this April 3rd, which is the day of this episode's release, just so happens to be Marlon Brando's birthday. So in honor of him, we are covering this monumental film, some of his best work. And speaking of birthdays, happy birthday to our listener and member of the Old Soul Fam, Kay. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> Yay. She is celebrating her birthday on April 5th. We hope it is a good one full of old Hollywood glamour and magic. Thank you so much for celebrating with us, Kay. We are just so excited for you. Yes. Happy birthday, Kay. Thank you so much for being part of the Old Soul fam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all your support and for watching these movies with us, for just enjoying the time that we spend together on uh, on air. So uh, happy birthday, Kay. I hope it's a great one. And to any other members of the old soul fam that have birthdays coming up feel free to shout us out on social media maybe we'll shout you out who knows but um but yes can't wait to get into on the waterfront this was such a a crazy crazy movie i'm so happy that it was listener requested and that we got the opportunity to cover it emma where do we begin i mean you mentioned marlon brando we uh i mean we could go actors we could go production where where do we start well first of all i have to ask you was this your first time watching this Spoiler alert, everyone will be shocked to find out that no. Or that, sorry, <laughs> that yes, it was my first time watching it. I so like, oh, wow. <laughs> no, actually, yeah, that that would have been a great surprise if it was. Was not. I don't know. I'm confused. I can't even think right now. So yes, this was the first time I watched it. And wow, what what a ride. What a an emotional roller coaster to say the least. Um, <laughs> but yes, how how I mean, I'm guessing this was not the first time you've watched it. No, I've actually watched it. I've actually had to watch it for different classes a couple of times. So I'm definitely familiar with it. And I'll be honest, this is another one that I've been wanting to cover, but I've been extremely nervous to cover because it is such a big one for so many reasons. Not only did it win eight Academy Awards, it's also a big metaphor for a Hollywood issue at large. So I think personally to maybe understand this movie or appreciate it even a little more, it would help to know a bit about Huac and Elia Kazan. So to recap a little, after World War II, there was a major communist witch hunt throughout the 40s and 50s in several different professions, but it absolutely impacted Hollywood pretty heavily. These investigations were led by the House Committee on Un-American Activities, aka HUAC. 
Now, HUAC was founded in 1938 as a way to search out individuals and groups and organizations that might have communist or fascist ties. In 1947, 10 directors and writers, and one was a producer also, were subpoenaed to testify before HUAC and refused. This led to contempt and criminal charges for the refusal, and these individuals, which included Dalton Trumbo, would go on to be known as the Hollywood Ten. After this incident, major producers in Hollywood met in regards to this event, and they released the Waldorf Statement. And with its release, it condemned the Hollywood Ten. It also said these statements, which are exact quotes. We will forthwith discharge or suspend without compensation those in our employ, and we will not re-employ any of the 10 until such time as he is acquitted or has purged himself of contempt and declares under oath that he is not a communist. On the broader issue of alleged subversive and disloyal elements in Hollywood, our members are likewise prepared to take positive action. We will not knowingly employ a communist or a member of any party or group which advocates the overthrow of the government of the United States by force, by any illegal or unconstitutional methods. In pursuing this policy, we are not going to be swayed by hysteria or intimidation from any source. We are frank to recognize that such a policy involves danger and risks. There is a danger of hurting innocent people. There's a risk of creating an atmosphere of fear. Creative work at its best cannot be carried out in an atmosphere of fear. We will guard against this danger, this risk, this fear. To this end, we will invite the Hollywood Talent Guilds to work with us to eliminate any subversives, to protect the innocent, and to safeguard free speech and a free screen wherever threatened. Which is just really interesting words in comparison to what goes down. So people in the industry, in the Hollywood industry, the movie industry, would be called upon as witnesses to HUAC. These hearings would eventually be televised for people to turn into. The point was essentially to have evidence that there were communists among people in the movie industry. As a witness, you might be asked to assure that you were not a communist and to give up names of people affiliated with communist activities. Unfriendly witnesses were people that would not cooperate or give names and or would say the investigation was a violation of their freedom. Oftentimes, these individuals would be blacklisted. So these people were totally, completely unable to find work. So that's absolutely crazy. There's just no, if, if you're called upon HUAC, it's just, there's no way out. Now, if you are called upon HUAC and either don't admit or admit to being a communist and give up names, that would make you more of a friendly witness. Now, being a friendly witness would mean giving up the names of other people, getting them blacklisted, and saving your own career. Elia Kazan would go on to be one of the most infamous friendly witnesses of all time. So, little background on Elia Kazan. Elia Kazan studied at the Yale School of Drama and worked as an actor for a bit in New York City. He eventually started directing famous plays, including The Skin of Our Teeth by Thornton Wilder, A Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. Of course, he would go on to direct the movie version. And the original production of Death of a Salesman by his friend, Arthur Miller. In 1947, 
Elliot Kazan helped found the Actors Studio, which was famously headed up by Lee Strasberg after Kazan left for Hollywood to focus on film directing. Now, Strasberg is known for implementing method acting, which has been famously used by actors like Montgomery Clift, James Dean, and of course, Marlon Brando. Definitely known for his casting of unknown actors who would rise to stardom eventually, Nicholas Ray would dub him the best actor's director. Uh, And his films focused on gritty realism, so not the happy-go-lucky stuff we might think of like flashy musicals or slapstick humor or whatever. So during the Great Depression in mid-1930s, Kazan had joined the Communist Party for a year and a half. In 1952, so 16-ish years later essentially, Kazan was summoned by HUAC to name names of people also involved in communism. At first, he did refuse to give any names. Now, it's my understanding that he may have received some threats from pretty high up people of not being able to work again. And then eventually, Kazan did give names to people who he had worked with back in New York City, including Lee Strasberg's wife, Paula Miller. So these weren't just random people. These were essentially friends and close colleagues. The big controversy is, is that Kazan claims that these names were already on HUAC's list. So he claims he didn't provide any new information. But others refute this, saying it's not true that HUAC didn't have some of those names, and he effectively ruined the lives and careers of those people forever. All of these actions lost him several friends, including Arthur Miller. And Miller would, of course, write the 1953 play The Crucible, which is very much a social commentary on the HUAC investigations. And then Kazan famously defended his actions with this movie that we're covering today, On the Waterfront from 1954, which he actually worked with Miller on in the early stages of its inception. He also wrote a piece in the New York Times reaffirming that he did the right thing and that it's an American's patriotic duty to inform on communists. And then the next year, 1955, Arthur Miller responded to that by writing A View from the Bridge, which is a play about a longshoreman who ousts his co-workers, but he's only motivated by jealousy and greed. So, yikes. But... Actually, Arthur Miller would later be called upon to testify before HUAC, and he did not name names, saying, I could not use the name of another person and bring trouble on him. And he was found in contempt of Congress in 1957, uh, sentenced to a fine and a prison sentence, blacklisted, and uh, he got his passport taken away. His conviction was eventually overturned in 1958, but as you can see, Arthur Miller was not all talk. He really did uh, keep his word on that. So I actually, in preparation for this, rewatched the footage from the 1999 Academy Awards. You can watch on YouTube in which Kazan is awarded an honorary Oscar. And it's a fascinating video because some clap and others refuse to applaud and stay sitting. People who did not applaud include familiar faces like Nick Nolte, Ed Harris, Ian McKellen, Uh, among others. And actually, uh, this movement, I think, cost Nick Nolte an opportunity working with Martin Scorsese, I believe, who was friends with Elliot Kazan. And, um, you know, and speaking of Martin Scorsese, I can't help but think of Goodfellas. 
And, uh, you know, little warning, Goodfellas spoilers here. So if you don't want that, maybe fast forward like a minute or two. But I mean, how does Goodfellas end? With Henry Hill becoming an informant against the people he worked with in the mafia and that he was close with. So this movie, not just this movie, but at this time period in this HUAC world, informants, stories about informants would start becoming part of the Hollywood narrative. Uh, Parallels of HUAC would start being shown in stories uh, such as this or even uh, the movie High Noon. It is another very well-known one. All very, very interesting. And I mean, this is a very HUAC-friendly team that was working on this movie. We have Elliot Kazan, of course, who was directing. Bud Schulberg, he was the screenwriter, and he was also a friendly witness who names names. Lee J. Cobb, who played Johnny Friendly, the mafia guy, he was threatened to be blacklisted, and he names names also. Right, right. I mean, that was a lot. <laughs> Let's just take a step back here and applaud Emma for that um, mini lecture kind of summary of uh, everything kind of going on. A story that I feel like if we're going to think about this in kind of like a Nietzsche way, or I'm, I'm thinking of the philosopher who said that time is, you know, relative or a flat circle. Um, I feel like it's the same story kind of being told <laughs> over and over again. I mean, you mentioned the crucible, but even thinking about like the Salem witch trials mm-hmm. or, you know, up until, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's contemporary cases that are just escaping my mind right now, but um, I mean, this one was definitely, I think, one of the most high profile sort of, you know, I think, culturally relevant instances with, you know, all the McCarthyism going on and uh, the blacklist, like you mentioned. So it's the same story, though. And I feel like this film, how we kind of circle it back to on the waterfront is sort of like an encapsulation of that that story in uh, a timeless sort of manner with great performances. So, um, yeah, very (laughs) all, all this to say, folks, very important film. And oh my goodness, how what the connect the personal connections I feel like from Elia Kazan and the rest of the uh, the cast are what make it you know even more relevant. So yeah, and like like and that's just it. Um, I think that it's worth knowing the story behind the story because I think that there's so much uh, that parallels or that it draws from. I remember that I think the first time I watched this and. If I am just looking at a brief two-sentence premise of this, you know, Terry, the dock worker, is struggling. Right. Whether to inform it. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, I'm not really sold on that. That's It's not like the most juicy thing that's like, oh, yeah, I've got to see that for me. But the acting, the writing, the, I mean, the direction – and the historical context, to me, make this just an incredible film. I don't think you have to know the history of HUAC to appreciate this, but I think it just makes it that much deeper and more layered. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree. And I guess speaking on those sort of strengths of the film, it was heavily rewarded at the Academy Awards. I mean, it had it feels like <laughs> nominations in almost every category and definitely the ones where you would just assume that it would be nominated so and wins and wins and wins like uh this is yeah an insane insane film i mean a lot of people a lot of critics have it within their top 10 lists of greatest films of all time Mm -hmm. so i feel like this is one where on the outset it's not you know it's not like the sound of music you know this is not (laughs) a, a happy 
kind of film uh, to say it or to put it lightly, but uh, super, super important. And I'm happy that we are finally having the chance to cover it, that I finally got the chance to watch it. Because when you look at, you know, I think people within the industry, it is so heavily respected that it's definitely worth watching and uh, being familiar with. So great stuff. 100% agree. And it's interesting, this, this, this whole story, fascinating movie. Like you said, there's so many very highly respected, amazing people that worked on this film. I think the cast is definitely worth giving a shout out. Uh, Marlon Brando's Terry Malloy. Marlon Brando, I just think he's very talented. Uh, and to me, this is one of, if not his greatest performances. Uh, we have Carl Malden as uh, Father Pete Berry. Uh, of course, we've seen Carl Malden before uh, a couple, couple months ago now as Mitch in A Streetcar Named Desire. So he is also familiar working with uh, Elia Kazan. Of course, Marlon Brando was in that movie too. Lee J. Cobb, who we mentioned, uh, is Michael J. Skelly, a.k.a. Johnny Friendly. Uh, Rod Steger as Charlie the Gent Malloy, Terry's brother. We have Eva Marie Saint as Edie Doyle. This is kind of interesting to me because Grace Kelly turned down this role to star in Rear Window. Which I, it's a win-win situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the role of Edie was between Eva Marie Saint and Elizabeth Montgomery, who, of course, we all know and love as Samantha on Bewitched. Elizabeth Montgomery ended up not getting the role. They found her to be a little too, uh, I believe, the quote is well-bred. Yes, yeah. too refined. Not to say that Ava Marie Saint isn't. I mean, yeah, I exactly. feel like she's still <laughs> like a stunner. She's still a stunner. And <laughs> right. not only that, but I mean, as I'm sure you know, maybe the listeners don't, but she was 30 when they filmed this, but yes. she was playing a 19 year old. So, yes. I mean, very fresh face, but I don't know how you could say that she isn't put together. I think, well, I, I know kind of the, the sentiment behind it was that it looked like Elizabeth Montgomery didn't, it, it didn't look like Elizabeth Montgomery was brought up on the docks. Yeah. I think that's just it. I think it's not saying that Ava Marie Saint isn't gorgeous because she is absolutely. She is. Yeah. I mean, she became a Hitchcock blonde. I think it's more like she looks like, she could fight it out a little bit more. I don't know. Or like yeah. a little bit rougher. She's yeah. tougher. She's like tough. People. I don't know. I, I, it's it's weird. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, and she did absolutely amazing in this film. Okay. And let's face it. She's the lead actress here. Uh, they submitted her under best supporting actress because that category was less competitive that year. I think that was a little sneaky. A little... uh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> who, who would have been the the lead actress in this then? There, she's like the only actress. <laughs> she is the only actress, so it, well, it is very one. confusing. It, yeah, uh, yeah. No, but I, I would be a little ticked off if I was competing in that category that year. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, no, I I feel that, and I mean, it's it's strong performances all around. I think we have to mention and I guess talk about Marlon Brando and just how this is widely considered maybe one of the best, if not the best lead actor performances of all time. I, I have here, I mean, you could check it out on, on the Wikipedia folks, but, um, you know, Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino, Benedict Cumberbatch, Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> and of course, <laughs> Robert Pattinson. Uh, they, they all, you know, they all very much respect the the performance that Brando puts in. So it like me not going into it, looking into the background at all, like I, I just 
I could see it was a very strong performance, but yeah. it was cool to to see that. I mean, especially in certain moments, like uh, I mean, the taxi cab scene. I feel mm. like anytime he's on the roof, like you could just see the the internal struggle. I feel like it's just so good. It's so so good on his part. He just absolutely nailed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually almost didn't even get the role, I believe, because he was uh, not happy with Elliot Kazan's actions himself. Mm-hmm. But I think there was some competitiveness that came out. Uh, Frank Sinatra was up for the role. Paul Newman, they had to do a screen test. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it ended up driving him to kind of be like, I'm going to take this. And I mean, yeah. it was the role he, he was meant for it. Yeah. In case you were curious, everyone, about who the actresses would have been that uh, Ava Marie Saint would have been going up against in that Academy Awards. Oh, yeah. I want to know. You know, it is kind of understandable in hindsight. <laughs> the winner that year was Grace Kelly in The Country Girl. But you also have Dorothy Dandridge in yep. Carmen Jones, which yep. we also covered uh, not too long ago. Judy Garland in A Star is Born. Yep. yep. Audrey, Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina. And Jane okay. Wyman and Jane Wyman in Magnificent Obsession. So that was a tough year. That, that was a hard year. That was a tough year. <laughs> but um, still, I mean, still. <laughs> and I think there is some controversy even with Grace Kelly winning that year. I think a lot of people thought Judy Garland absolutely should have won that year. Um, we'll get into that. Maybe nominations. Later. Nominations, in my yeah, opinion, it, are it good tough. enough. Nominations yeah. are good enough. Yeah, that was a tough year. Yeah. Wow. Even just saying, it's like, think of every, you know, high profile old Hollywood actress you could think of. They were kind of nominated that year. But uh, Ava Marie Saint absolutely killed it. Incredible job. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that along with pretty much everything else. I mean, best motion picture, best director, best actor, best supporting actor, best supporting actress. It should have just been actress. Best story and screenplay. Yeah. Best art direction, best cinematography, which again, insane. Best film editing best music score. I mean, it's it's everything, basically. Yeah. Very, very important film, to say the least, and must watch. Absolutely. And what's, to me, also interesting is that the lead characters in this story were based on real people. Uh, Terry Malloy was based off of the whistleblower and longshoreman Anthony DeVincenzo. Uh, Father Barry was based off of a real priest named John M. Corridan. And then uh, John Friendly was based off of the mobster Albert Anastasia. So uh, this is like not not a true story. <laughs> you could say it, in today's in today's world, I feel like it would be marketed as inspired by real events or inspired by you know a true story. Real events galore here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, so yeah, keep that in mind definitely while you're watching it if you haven't watched it before like me of course always predictable but yeah emma what else shall we cover before we head into the rewatch um gosh anything? i just anything? Or we I, get to this, mo- this movie is just beautiful it's terrific i just thoroughly enjoy it i really do and yeah I, w- I was nervous to cover it but i'm also excited to talk about it because some of my favorite acting of all time absolutely incredible yeah let let's get into it because this is a really really exciting one We are first introduced to mob-connected union boss, Johnny Friendly, who gloats about his iron-fisted control of the waterfront. The police and the Waterfront Crime Commission know that Friendly is behind a number of murders, but witnesses play D&D, that is, deaf and dumb, 
accepting their subservient position rather than risking the danger and shame of informing. Terry Malloy, played by Marlon Brando, is a dock worker whose brother, Charlie the Gent, is Friendly's right-hand man. Terry had been a promising boxer until Friendly instructed Charlie to have Terry deliberately lose a fight so that Friendly could win money by betting against him. Terry coaxes Joey Doyle, a popular dock worker, into an ambush, preventing Joey from testifying against Friendly before the crime commission. Terry assumed that Friendly's enforcers were only going to lean, that is, rough up, Joey to pressure him into silence and a surprise when Joey is killed. Joey's sister Edie, angry about her brother's death, shames waterfront priest Father Barry into fomenting action against the mob-controlled union. Friendly sends Terry to attend and inform on a dock workers' meeting Father Barry holds in the church, which is broken up by Friendly's men. Terry helps Edie escape the violence and is smitten with her. Another dock worker, Timothy J. K.O. Dugan, who agrees to testify after Father Barry promises unwavering support, ends up dead after Friendly arranges for him to be crushed by a load of whiskey in a staged accident. Wow. Uh, Okay. So Mm -hmm. I want to know, what are your initial impressions of the mob, Terry, and the setup for Joey? That whole opening scene. You know, this is a really, really interesting film to watch. And I think uh, the modern standpoint, because I think, I mean, this could just be me, but I was more introduced to and more familiar with, I think, Scorsese gangster movies. And Mm -hmm. so it is cool to see, I think, how some of those could have been influenced by this movie because I was getting sort of Goodfellas vibes. Little casino vibes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. I think right off the bat, that's what that sort of reminded me of, except it's taking place on this <laughs> waterfront, on the waterfront. <laughs> the waterfront. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that it's, I think really the the first thing that stood out to me was just the initial, the grittiness mm-hmm. of, uh, of the film. It's very dark, little noir-ish, but I think that that's just where the, uh, the cinematography and just the art direction are just so uh, so perfect because I feel like it is just the right feeling. It, it feels cold. How do you get that feeling just by using black and white? Like, I have no idea. And they somehow, they, they make that happen. And um, that was the first thing that, that was the first thing that I noticed. And then, of course, you're introduced to the gang friendly. I mean, the very, very intimidating right off the bat. Um, oh, uh, Charlie the Gent. Yeah, that's a that's a great gangster name. That's a that the Gent. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> the Gent. Definitely, I feel like uh, Jimmy maybe got inspired by that a little bit in Goodfellas. Mm. We'll see. I don't know, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, who knows? But um, but yeah, definitely, you can sense the. Uh, how how you can sense how formidable this group is and you just would not want to cross them. And yeah, unfortunately we kind of see this whole scene play out with young Joey and unfortunate Terry who was not expecting, I think for that to happen, this whole push off the roof ordeal. Exactly. I think you do get a sense of naivete or, you know, not super worldliness from Terry. Like, I, I think it's very easy to assume, oh yeah, he's a bad kid also. But seeing his reaction, I think just solidifies something that we can kind of see in ourselves. Right. 
And you get some interesting lines here, like uh, just some very pointed lines, I would say, uh, with uh, the one that's like, Joey was the only longshoreman who had the guts to talk to those crime investigators from someone who discovers his dead body. And with that, I'm pretty sure we have our thesis of informants and working with the authorities and putting an end to bad (laughs) stuff or stuff being deemed bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it takes guts. It takes courage. And so we'll see that that's uh, a tough order. Uh, What do you think of Edie? Edie, I mean, right off the bat, I'm I'm smitten with Edie. I can easily (laughs) see how Terry is. Um, but it's, it's really, I think not, uh, yeah, I I think it's really interesting to see how invested she is, I think in continuing the investigation or just really finding out and exposing the people that were behind her brother's death. I mean, I would expect and hope for, you know, equal treatment if anything happened to me, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) but yeah, (laughs) Uh, I, I do, she, she has this, you know, again, I'm going to probably say the word gritty a million times this episode, but she does have that grittiness. I can see why, uh, Kazan wanted her because you could, like, you could see her kind of growing up in this environment. Like she's kind of rough around the edges, but she's also stunning. So it's, a uh, yeah, it's a uh, perfect casting. And again, her performance is just stellar, but what do you think? from a character standpoint, I love her. I love her. She's a fighter. She's fierce. She wants to know who killed Joey and she will not stop until they discover it. I just, I love the fire. I love the passion. I think she's great. She's a great written character. Love it. Love it. That's a great role. But yeah, I just, poor Terry really stuck here in this position. And also when the dock workers are kind of first approached by authorities here, notice how Terry refuses to acknowledge knowing anything at first. Mm. A little like someone else we know. Uh, Kazan. Oh, right. <laughs> he, he, den- he denied uh, naming names at first. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. All right. Perfect. Yeah. I, I could have sworn that I, uh, I was reading about Elliot Kazan uh, earlier or just at some point in time. And noting that he would not take a job unless he felt some type of personal connection to the story or um, I don't yes. know, some deeper kind of underlying sentiment that was shared. I mean, and, East of Eden. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I won't even get started on East of Eden right now, but uh, go back and listen <laughs> to that episode if you want to hear my thoughts on that one. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do... I, I do think that that makes it just a, a stronger story overall to have that connection between the director and maybe the, yeah, the lead character. And, um, and I do also think that this character is super uh, intriguing. I'd like to hear your thoughts on him, but father Barry, uh, what do, what do we think of the waterfront priest here, Emma? Love father Barry. What a guy, what a guy. I love a priest that's, Got a little toughness in him, <laughs> like not I your know. traditional priest. I know. He's very compelling. He's very compelling, uh, very warm. He's someone I wouldn't mind having an alliance with. It's not yet, but later on, I mean, Terry makes a point that it doesn't matter if he's a priest, you can still have an opinion and take sides. And he absolutely does. So I think that makes him unique. He's not this neutral heavenly perfect figure he's got a whole personality and depth and i was gonna all say of that on his own yeah no he 
yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm a little torn between Father Barry. Like, yes, I, I like his grittiness and I love, you know, the, the stuff that he stands for and how committed he is to um, really exposing the, the crime underworld. I think in an ironic way, he sort of acts like, he, he's kind of like a good devil on Terry's shoulder throughout <laughs> the entire uh, film. <laughs> Like he, he's kind of like the, the angel and the devil. He just, he eggs him on so much. I feel like to do things mm. that he would just never normally do. So yes, like he's probably an angel, but he goes about it in sort of like this devilish way. I and, pressure you know, way kind of yeah. Catholic guilting him. Oh, it is classic Catholic <laughs> guilt, like one Oh one happening here. So, um, yeah, no, he, he's a very strong character. I like having the, uh, I guess the balance between, everything happening because you can see you know just from where terry starts he's he's one of the metaphorical symbolic hawks sort of he's still kind of like a pigeon but (laughs) i feel like there's a lot of symbol symbolism going on kind of throughout this movie so yes i'm and speaking of which terry gives a line to i believe charlie pretty early on saying that he doesn't want you know he feels like he's stooling and charlie's like stooling is when you rat on your friends and it's just, yeah, it's interesting because that term obviously comes from stool pigeon. Like you said, there's a lot of symbolism of pigeons and hawks and, right. and all that. Terry raises pigeons, Joey raises pigeons and stool pigeons. And blah. and uh, yeah, Terry's essentially being told where his alliances are and the pressure is on. So it's a lot. And it also, for me, some of this, Terry kind of saying, me, I'm with me. Like he's for himself. He doesn't care about, you know, dock workers or mafia or whatever. He's, he's only there for himself. And it definitely harkens back to a sentiment we heard in Casablanca of not taking sides. I don't stick my neck out for nobody. Yeah. Well, (laughs) at the end of the day, uh, that was kind of a propaganda ish film. And this is kind of, you know, a message in a different way. At the end of the day, both of those films were kind of getting through saying that you can never truly be neutral. It's not possible and it doesn't work. Everything you do can stand for something greater. Okay. So, and I love the scene after Terry kind of saves her. We get a little bit of a spark between Edie and Terry here. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a cute scene. I love the dropping of the glove. That was an accident at first. Uh, Kazan liked it so much that they kept it in. And uh, the, some of the lines are just so funny when Terry says the uh, you was really a real mess, <laughs> like talking about how she looked with braces and pigtails back in the day. Uh, that just killed me. And I would say the same thing, like, you know what? I'm just going to go. <laughs> I'm yeah. so embarrassed. But it shows that he's kind of an innocent. He's got this innocent mindset. He isn't really crafty. So it just reinforces that for us. And this scene just makes my heart skip a beat. I just get so fluttery inside. I don't know about you. I mean, this entire time I'm putting myself in uh, in Joey's shoes, ghost Joey, you know, tailing Edie on this uh, this date. I don't even know if you, what you'd call it. But, you know, I, I would be upset if I were Joey. I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, that's the guy that sent me to the roof. But of course, Terry didn't know what you know, was going to go down. And Edie um, doesn't know. And-, and Edie doesn't know. And Terry still feels guilty about it. Like he wants to say it. So I, I think just like the inner, the inner conflict of Terry is super interesting. And I, I think it's just, I think the inner conflict of Terry is really the driving force of the movie mm-hmm. for me. And just kind of where 
my main interest lies and just seeing like how badly he wants to, I think he, he really wants to expose everyone, but he at the same time is putting himself first. Yeah. He just wants to be old Terry, the dock worker, easy, happy life. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, he, he kind of mentions stuff along those lines. Like he just wants to have a few extra potatoes. Don't we all at the end of the day (laughs) and some change in his pocket. He doesn't want to end up like that one bum quote unquote bum that he meets. And that's the other thing he's so preoccupied with, I think labels and like he, he, he labels people as bums all the time. I mean, canary he come, he, and yeah, whatever. Canary, <laughs> he, he comes from a world. I mean, he, he's a, an ex boxer prize fighter. And uh, I think it's, it's easy to, you know, call people like, Oh, he's a bum, like whatever, like, uh, in that context within sports and then just kind of continuing on to label people as that, uh, in the real world, but it's not quite as black, <laughs> ironically black and white like the movie is where you know someone is a quote-unquote winner or loser in life like there's a lot of gray area and so I think that watching that progression of uh Terry in his mind and I think between his interactions with Father Barry and of course just how strongly he continues to feel for Edie then you kind of see this uh this this arc start and it's a it's a beautiful thing so absolutely and you mentioned ghost joey not being happy uh well joey is not around her dad is and her dad sure is not happy with her interest in terry we get a little character insight that Edie is kind of attracted to lost causes and that she's also very dedicated to the fight for justice and that's what's most important to her despite her parents trying to send her to school she knows the sacrifice they made but she needs to spend her time and energy trying to make things right. And it's just further hammering down that theme of justice. (laughs) All right. So moving on, although Terry resents being used as a tool in Joey's death, and despite Father Barry's impassioned sermon on the docks, reminding the longshoremen that Christ walks among them, that every murder is a crucifixion, Terry is at first willing to remain deaf and dumb, even when subpoenaed to testify. However, when Edie, unaware of Terry's role in her brother's death, begins to return Terry's feelings, Terry is tormented by his awakening conscience and confesses the circumstances of Joy's death to Father Barry and Edie. Horrified, Edie runs away from him. Uh, what do we think of this? What do we think of this? What are our initial thoughts, reactions? Yeah, I mean, the romance is really picking up a bit here. This whole her on the roof and them kind of getting together more uh, the chemistry is great the tension is great the i i really see it between these two yeah. and oh man there is no chance she's turning down a beer with marlon brando terry malloy <laughs> i was gonna say i mean Mar- <laughs> this marlon brando this terry malloy kind of was the og uh <laughs> cut in the eyebrow look um, that is now very, very popular with the uh, the Gen Z, the uh, I don't know, the new generational folks, maybe not ne- not necessarily the Gen Z, but I know it was kind of a hot look a few years back to like put a fake, you know, scar in your eyebrow. I feel like this is a real a scar. Jason Momoa. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like it looks badass, but you know, Terry definitely got in a fight. He's not some TikToker that just took a razor and just put it in there to to look tough. So yeah. Marlon Brando looks like a stud. 
the stud that he is in this. You know, granted, he doesn't have the uh, the shirt popping like uh, streetcar named Desire, but he doesn't need it. He's just a beast. And um, yeah, sorry to I guess hype up Marlon Brando there. No, first, he but. he's he's uh, he's absolutely magnetic. I mean, yeah. how I, how do you not kind of have a thing for him in this movie? Yeah. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Elliot Kazan knows how to direct men. Does some of it's their own charm, but I mean, it's something that's pretty consistent across the board. Be it James Dean or Marlon Brando or Warren Beatty or whoever. Mm-hmm. It just it, it feels so natural when they're at the bar and yes. you know they're they're kind of throwing back. I mean, he's throwing back the shot. She's kind of sipping on it, and then he's like, "No, like this," and then boom, it's like I don't know. You could just sense that there was kind of like a natural chemistry going on between them. Mm-hmm. And um, it just felt like a, a thing that you would witness in real life. I don't know. I don't know how to say it. I think that's always a mark of good acting. If it feels like you forget that you're watching a movie. <laughs> right. No, I, I felt like I was just at the table with them and you could just see like, it, it wasn't kind of this, this romance, this kind of buildup wasn't out of nowhere. Like you could kind of see it gradually start to grow. So mm-hmm. um, great buildup. Yeah, no, it's great buildup. And I just, I love the energy. I love the energy of these two. It's it's great. <laughs> the lines are great too. So Terry gives his philosophy in life here. Do it to him before he does it to you. And maybe right. this is a statement on everyone screwing everyone over. You've got to protect yourself. And then the, the quit worrying about the truth and worry about yourself. Uh, obviously, this is where the points will be with dynamic change that will come into Terry's character development. Yeah, the stakes really raise a little bit here when Terry's subpoenaed and then we run into the gangsters again <laughs> when they're telling him to lay off and, you know, not hang out with Edie anymore. And Charlie says, it's an unhealthy relationship. And my first response is, I'll say. Yeah, putting it mildly. <laughs> but again, I mean, this is, I think, where jumping a little bit forward, we start to see uh, peer pressuring Father Barry come out. The Catholic guilt okay. Father Barry come out. Okay. Why don't you just, yes. just tell her, you know, what, what what's the worst that's going to happen? Okay, Father Barry. Um, easy for you to say. Like, <laughs> there, There's a few Father Barry moments that are, I don't want to say high and mighty, but very high pressure. When, when Dugan's killed in the quote-unquote doc accident, Father Barry then kind of gives a speech to everyone, and he compares... The informants that are killed, quite literally, to Jesus. Right. And if you don't inform, uh, you're like the people that killed Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's heavy. That is uh, very heavy. <laughs> this, I mean, the, like, while you're watching it, you can almost tell, like, this is a famous scene. Like, this is a very powerful scene. I, it was probably the most, you know, impactful or just kind of like captivating, I think, while I was watching it. Like, this one and, of course, the, uh, the scene a little bit later on in the in the cab. You're definitely appealing to a certain group of people here. Yeah, uh, we saw that the Catholic Legion of Decency has had some say in things throughout the years, and, and what's getting put out there. It's just wow, really heavy, and it's reaffirming that change is reliant on each individual person to act, and it won't get better unless you start with yourself. And yeah, this this will be seen. For sure in this movie, uh, but we've seen it again, like I said before, in Casablanca, like movement changes with the individual. Yeah, and so it gets harder and harder. We get 
in my opinion, another great movie kiss between Terry and Edie when mm-hmm. she brings him her brother's jacket. And I'm like, because, okay, if Joey had it and then Dugan had it, I'm like, nah, huh, friend, that thing is cursed. <laughs> no. Don't take it, Terry. No. Yeah, and I don't know. Father Barry really puts things into perspective of, I don't care how nice they treated you or how good of friends you were. The world is bigger than yourself and your world, and you need to think of society at large. I feel like that's a really interesting uh, sentiment that could be kind of translated to situations today. Yeah, and I really like how they did the reveal scene to Edie about when Terry decides to tell her about his involvement with her brother's death with the horn blowing in the background. That is such a terribly annoying, uncomfortable sound. We all know what it's like. We as an audience know that feeling and we can vicariously then feel what Edie is feeling because we know that that, oh, that like anxiety feeling of, God, I just want it to end <laughs> when, when you hear that annoying sound. Right. That's kind of what she's feeling and we can feel that then. Also, great delivery on her part as well. Uh, Emory saying, just tip my cap to you, girl. She, she killed it. And also what I've kind of loved is, okay, so when you're telling a story, there's your, your story and then there's, there's these little like sub Reddit threads <laughs> that are woven in and one of which is terry's boxing career life we've been progressively throughout the film getting insight into terry's life as a boxer we learned that he had talent there pretty good uh and then we learned that he lost and that was unexpected and now we learned that it was fixed when he's kind of talking to this investigator guy so that's also been a fun little story to see develop underneath everything else. Uh, the mystery of that, the reveal of that. I echo the sentiment. I think that that delivery scene of Terry telling Edie the the news, I like how mm-hmm. you can kind of interpret uh, the delivery in multiple ways. I mean, you can kind mm-hmm. of read his, his lips, but the reaction shots of Ava Marie saying are also just amazing. And um, there, you just think of your own kind of personal moments in life where you had to kind of tell someone where you were just dreading telling mm-hmm. them that and you just, you know exactly what it feels like. And so uh, I, I think that that was just a, a perfect encapsulation of that feeling. And so that was, pro- I think that was actually my favorite scene. I think that was my favorite scene. So Wow, um, cool. Yeah, I thought it was cool. I liked it. Next, as Terry increasingly leans toward testifying, Friendly decides that Terry must be killed unless Charlie can coerce him into keeping quiet. Charlie tries bribing Terry, offering him a good job where he can receive kickbacks without any physical work, and finally threatens Terry by holding a gun against him, but recognizes that he has failed to sway Terry, who blames his own downward spiral on his well-off brother. Terry reminds Charlie that had it not been for the fixed fight, Terry's prizefighter career would have bloomed I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody, laments Terry to his brother. Instead, instead of a bum, which is what I am, let's face it, Charlie gives Terry the gun and advises him to run. Terry flees to Edie's apartment, where she first refuses to let him in, but finally admits her love for him. Friendly, having had Charlie watched, has Charlie murdered that night near the apartment and his body hung in an alley as bait to lure Terry out to his death. But Terry and Edie, both escape. After finding Charlie's body, Terry sets out to shoot Friendly, but Father Barry prevents it by blocking Terry's line of fire, convincing Terry to fight Friendly by testifying in court instead. 
Terry proceeds to give damaging testimony implicating Friendly in Joey's murder and other illegal activities, causing Friendly's mob boss to cut him off and Friendly to face indictment. Another big turning point situation. I would say. I would say so. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So this mob beating at the very beginning of this section, uh, further insight. And I think you as an audience, you can really connect with the guilt that people might lay on you in Charlie's predicament. And uh, we go on to one of the most famous scenes in cinema history, the I could have been a contender speech. Some of the best acting you'll ever see from actors. <laughs> Amazing. Incredible. And and we get the conclusion of Terry's boxing journey. Yeah, it, it was his brother that set him up. This whole freaking gang <laughs> that set him up to lose this fight. And it ended up ruining his life. Yeah, I love that it's just been kind of separated throughout the movie. And we finally get that realization. Mm-hmm. Terry gave up his life goals, his dreams, all for these people that really didn't care about him and used him. And the just the delivery here, the delivery is just beautiful. The and the score, I think this is where I'm like, yes, yes, Leonard Bernstein. The score is amazing. Uh, it wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. Like that heartbreak. This scene just rips me up. The conflict. It's amazing. What were your thoughts watching this scene for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that. It was so, it was, again, it, it kind of reminded me of some Scorsese uh, moments, kind of like you knew what was on the line. I had no clue how this uh, this moment was going to, to end, really. I, I think I could have seen and predicted, like, you know, them talking and uh, kind of everything that happens to Charlie, ultimately. I, I knew that that was going to be tough. I think that, you know, brother dynamics are... Uh, you know, pretty strong, strong points in in movies in general, and to I mean, have something of this kind of magnitude, like convince your brother not to not to rat, or you have to kill him, or, uh, or we'll kill him. Or, you know, or we'll kill him. Yeah, he'll, exactly. He'll end up dead. <laughs> uh, I'd say the stakes are pretty high there, and um, to have kind of that conversation, I think, kind of go in a direction of something that had been an underlying issue for a long time, as you could tell. Uh, I think that you could just see, you could see the history between those two brothers very well. And I think uh, some of the resentfulness, I think, was coming out. Uh, And it was, I mean, it was hard to watch, but I think Charlie ultimately accepted his fate. I think Charlie kind of knew as well. I mean, maybe like... Maybe he had a chance to, you know, to dip right right after that ride. But I think he kind of knew in that moment what his fate was going to be. And he ultimately kind of bought into what Terry was ultimately working towards, which is a higher cause. So it was, it was really, I think, beautifully done. And uh, again, Marlon Brando, I mean, just endless, endless applause. Uh, for that performance and the, the deliveries, um, very very strong. And I do love that we give a more kind of a empathetic look at Charlie. Even you're not seeing that these gangsters is just these purely evil, one dimensional <laughs> things. You're finally seeing someone who who's in that camp and is feeling a little 
conflict and guilt as well. And I just thought that that was terrific. Mm-hmm. But beautiful scene, such organic acting. That method acting really shows through here. And what I kind of love, okay, so like he sends Terry away, but we get a close look at the cab driver who is played by Nehemiah Persoff. And if he looks familiar, it's because he played Little Bonaparte in Some Like It Hot, the gangster mm-hmm. in that movie. So very gangster presence, that one. <laughs> I just thought that that was a cool little cameo. He was not credited. So just just fun. And <sighs> the trap. I just knew the first time I even watched this, I just knew that this was a trap and Terry should have too. The suspense with this, with Terry going in the alley and Edie chasing after him. It's, it's just great. And then when he discovers Charlie, you have that same, uh, that same segment of the score from the cab ride. And now knowing more about the relationship as brothers, it makes this scene so sad when he finds Charlie dead, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really packs that punch. And then look at that. We get that the only way to serve justice and truly make things right is to talk in court, not shooting someone up at a bar. It just reaffirms, take it to the people in charge. Or right. you know. And I think it's also worth noting that this hearing was televised with Terry and all this stuff, much like the actual HUAC hearings. Yeah, no, definitely a good thing to point out there. Uh, I mean, again, I think that that just reaffirmed how important of a case it was. And um, I just, I love Terry's demeanor. I love how he's just, he's not very refined. I can't remember exactly what he says instead of I do, but I like (laughs) how they have to correct him there. And he's he's just ready. I mean, it's just very cut and dry, um, kind of, kind of like Goodfellas almost. Like it's, it's a little bit like that ending and, I think I, I could just see a lot of parallels between the two. Um, I mean, of course, they're both gangster movies, but on one hand, you're very happy to see him testifying, but then you kind of think to yourself, like, is he in trouble? Like, what's, mm-hmm. I'm kind of already thinking, what's going to happen after this? And so I think it ultimately sets up a very, very uh, <sighs> tense final conflict here. But um, yeah, any any other thoughts on this kind of segment for you? No, it's quite an epic ending. Yeah. I'll say that. (laughs) After the testimony, Friendly announces that Terry will not find employment anywhere on the waterfront. Terry is shunned by his former friends and by a neighborhood boy who had previously looked up to him. Refusing Edie's suggestion that they move far away from the waterfront together, Terry shows up during recruitment at the docks. When he is the only man not hired, Terry openly confronts Friendly, calling him out and proclaiming that he is proud of what he did. The confrontation develops into a vicious brawl, with Terry getting the upper hand until Friendly's thugs gang up on Terry and nearly beat him to death. The dock workers who witness the confrontation show their support for Terry by refusing to work unless Terry is working too, and ultimately, they push Friendly into the river. Encouraged by Father Barry and Edie, the badly injured Terry forces himself to his feet and enters the dock followed by the other workers. A soaking wet and face-scarred friendly, now left with nothing, swears revenge on all of them, but his threats fall on deaf ears as they enter the garage and the door closes behind them. On the waterfront. On the waterfront, (laughs) folks. Well, 
my first, one of the things that stood out to me a little after the testimony, one of the first things that the mob says is, or that Friendly says is uh, that Terry will never work again in this town or whatever. Very much the threat in real life with the HUAC hearings. And I don't know. That was just so, to me, like that being able to continue making a living and stuff, that sentiment being shown in this light through Elliot Kazan's voice. Yeah. Just very interesting. And even Terry expressing feelings of conflict with being a snitch or a canary. And I don't know Elliot Kazan. I don't know what his true heart was in all of this and how he felt and experienced all this. But I feel like you get a sense of this isn't easy. Like even though Terry in this situation and his own story knows he's doing the right thing he had to give up a lot in return for that. Uh, what were your thoughts here in some of these final moments, these these brawls, these fights, these, the roughing up? I mean, I was, I think, initially a little confused because I thought that Friendly would have immediately gone to jail. I didn't know that he could kind of go back. Um, I, was yeah. kind of, I was kind of just like, wait, what? Um, while I was watching it, I was a little confused there. But I mean, I still love seeing him return to the dock. I, I like the fact that he, um, I mean, he very well could have just left with Edie and called it, you know, but instead he, he does sort of confront everyone and like the elephant in the room, the elephant on the dock, maybe the whale on the dock, who knows? Um, and he goes and he tells them that, you know, he's still, he's not afraid. He's not afraid to show up to, to face them in person. And, he still stands by his decision. He doesn't regret it. And um, I think that's what the the dock workers needed to see. They needed to see somebody not just, you know, go to court, but still stand firm in what they did. And I think mm. that ultimately is the quote unquote chapter ending on the organized crime within the waterfront. And um, I mean, I just, I love how... Uh, <laughs> how this kind of mimics something that happened in real life. I mean, as you know, shortly after the film's debut in 1954, the AFL-CIO expelled the East Coast Longshoremen's Union because it was still run by the mob. So look at that. This is Yeah, this is a cool little scene here that I feel like might have had some very real, real world ramifications and effects. And yeah, I mean, I, I just, I think the... It was just so wonderfully done, him kind of walking to uh, to the garage. Oh, that's w- one of my favorite scenes. The, think, the, yeah, the camera work is, yeah. is phenomenal. I think that there are a few moments where you kind of get this Terry perspective, quote unquote, throughout the movie. But this this final scene, it's like him. It's kind of like reaching a finish line almost after an Ironman or a marathon, you know, pick your poison. <laughs> Where you think that, I mean, there are just a couple moments where you think he's going, he's going down, like he's not going to make it. And um, I think for him to find that strength, it's almost the equivalent of a symbolic prize fighter, you know, world title <laughs> or something like he, he made it like he still, um, he went all 12 rounds with, uh, with friendly and he, he kind of came yo, out Adrian. victorious. So yo, Adrian, yo, Terry, <laughs> yo, Edie. Um, <laughs> Yo, Barry, Father Barry. I don't know. But uh, yeah, no, he he makes it and it's just, uh, it's a glorious ending. The symbolism that you can be put through the ringer, that you can 
feel so rough after doing something hard, but still be able to persevere and find that strength. Uh, it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, yeah. On the waterfront overall, what'd you think? What'd you think? Overall oh, thoughts. Wrap it was up. great. It was great. I think it's, uh, I call too many things this, but it's such a vibe. Like it is, <laughs> um, it's definitely got a, a unique feel to it. And I think if you're in the mood for, yeah, that gritty kind of, um, moody movie film, uh, then this is perfect. This is perfect. I think it has great performances all around. Obviously, uh, Marlon Brando <laughs> is stellar, absolutely stellar. And, um, yeah, highly recommend to anyone that is, uh, that is interested. If you, if you've listened to all this and you have not seen it <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I hope that you'd be at least curious to watch it at this point, but, um, but yeah, no, just amazing, amazing film. I'm happy that we got the chance to cover it. And, uh, and yeah, Emma, what were your kind of parting thoughts here? Well, I'll echo what I said earlier. I think that if I was just given the premise, this isn't one that would naturally appeal to me where I'm like, I have to watch it, but it's, absolutely stunning movie, very captivating. I don't see how it can't speak something to you. And yes, we obviously pointed out so much of how this was kind of Elliot Kazan's response with his defense of his choosing to name names. But I think it has more value than just that. I think that this can very much be looked at from a modern lens of choosing to speak up and stand up for what's right, uh, or, you know, your, your values and ethics. I just think of maybe people who have friends or family who might say something sexist or racist and how change happens when you as an individual can speak up and against those people. It kind of reminds me of Harry Potter. Uh, you know, it's hard to stand up to your enemies, but it's harder to stand up to your friends. And I just, I can't help but think of that in, in the world we're living in when there's just so much terrible stuff going on. Uh, it's, it's really on you to try to make the world a little bit more, I guess, working towards progress. Uh, so I do think it has, um, value beyond maybe the intention, uh, or a message that people can carry on or see within themselves. Elliot Kazan has a, a complicated legacy. He produced some of the most phenomenal film pieces and it's hard because, you know, and at the same time, so many other careers were impacted and destroyed and it's hard. It's hard. And I, I can't, I really, I really can't even imagine. So he's definitely an interesting figure to talk about. And I'm excited to cover more of his work maybe next week we'll <laughs> I don't see know. what happens there yeah we got some good stuff on the i don't know the schedule for the old soul movie podcast very exciting i'm just gonna let you know now everyone um get excited for next week hopefully you liked this episode because next week it's not exactly a part two but i think we'll get a little bit of an extension of some of the things we talked about this week next week episode is going to be so good we haven't recorded it yet but i can already tell you that i am so excited oh yeah emma's emma's really looking forward to it i'm looking <laughs> forward to it too but emma's really looking forward to it so <laughs> Uh, yeah, can't wait to cover that one, guys. Stay uh, stay in touch with us, Old Soul Movie Podcast on Instagram, Old Soul Pod on Twitter. Reach out to us. Reach out to us. Tell us what you loved about this movie. Did you love Marlon Brando's performance? Did you love Ava Marie Saint as much as we did? Or are you just 
are you just a fan? Which is great too. <laughs> Uh, we love we love everybody again. Happy birthday, Kay. We hope you listen to all this. And, yes, um, happy birthday, Kay. And, happy birthday uh, to Marlon happy, Brando. Ha- yes, Marlon Brando. Happy heavenly birthday. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, good stuff all around. Everyone, if you would be inclined, we would also greatly, greatly appreciate it if you passed through our Patreon Old Soul Movie Podcast and considered uh, supporting the show by um, any kind of donation that would be uh possible for you we would just again greatly greatly appreciate it uh for helping us cover the cost of the show but um at the very least at the very least we just ask you to leave us a review on apple if that is your preferred streaming method give us five stars leave a little nice comment uh below and uh and yeah emma anything else before we sign off nope just get pumped for next week (laughs) definitely definitely it's gonna be fun guys until next time take care And thank you again so much for joining us here on the Old Soul Movie Podcast.